asking questions is so important to determine the goal that people have, what actually they would like to really achieve with this operation. And this is a topic within its own. It can be not only the best possible weight loss, it's just lighter and travel a lot or just get rid of some of the medications or get rid of heartburn, falling pregnant. There's so many factors can play a role in what type of operation needs to be discussed. Welcome to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast, where every two weeks we explore all the aspects of the weight loss surgery journey. We'll hear from a range of experts, including bariatric surgeons, psychologists, patients, and dietitians, sharing up-to-date informative advice to help fast-track your long-term weight loss success. Welcome back to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast. I'm Jackie Lewis, I'm your host, and I'm the clinical nutritionist for Being Healthy. So today's episode, we're going to cover all things bariatric surgery, ranging from who qualifies and how, and what are the implications of bariatric surgery, the benefits, and who performs the surgery. So speaking with a surgeon, I guess, is probably the best approach to find the answers to all of these questions. And today I've had the pleasure of Dr. Harold Koala from the Gold Coast in Queensland. Dr. Harold has over 20 years of experience and his specialty interests are, of course, bariatric surgery. He's performed thousands of procedures during his career. Originally from Austria, where he graduated in 1994 at the Medical University of Vienna, he completed his specialist exams in 2002. He's also completed a PhD in liver surgery. Living and working on the Gold Coast since 2006, Dr. Puala enjoys spending time outdoors and which better place to do it than the beaches of the sunny Gold Coast. And he likes to spend time with family and friends and his old English sheepdog, Rosie. I would have given Rosie a special mention in our episode. Instead, we actually spoke about Dr. Puala's success with bariatric surgery we explored the different types of surgery and when they might be applied. And we also talked about the keys to success. So stick around because this one, we went deep and I think we went into places that would help anyone who's looking at exploring bariatric surgery or anyone who's further along in the journey and looking at ways to perfect their bariatric lifestyle. So thanks again for joining me on the podcast and a very warm welcome to Dr. Harold Puala. Hello, everyone. Thanks, Jackie, for having me. Thank you for your precious time. We're just discussing off air your practice and your passion for all things bariatric and gastric. And it's been going on for a long time. How long have you been in practice? I started my training in uh, surgery in the mid-1990s, just showing my age now, and became a consultant in 2002, several years of specific training afterwards, which was in bariatric surgery as well. And yeah, so I'm around since a long time. You would have seen all the different transitions from, I guess, band bypass sleeves and then, I guess, revisions of how we perform each of the surgeries and the improvements they've made along the way. What a great skill set to bring to practice. It's great to have you on the show. So today we were looking at kind of exploring bariatric surgery and also discussing the review of the weight loss surgery guidelines for qualifying for bariatric surgery as well. And who better to talk to than a bariatric surgeon? So I was just kind of open with exploring when should 
patients start to explore the prospect of bariatric surgery and what would lead them to that position where they also qualify? Usually people who have struggled to lose weight would be good candidates, especially if they are not successful to achieve their um, long-term goals. And the patients usually I see, they had a lot of yo-yo dieting and they gain more weight in between their dietings than they have lost. So it's frustrating. And because of this frustration, then it often becomes an emotional topic as well. So it's people who have goals, want to improve things for themselves, and of course, meet some of the guidelines, and I'll talk maybe about them a little bit later. But Mm -hmm. because people can't achieve what they would like to achieve in regards to their weight affects their mental health often. I find also self-confidence and the self-image is certainly affected. And this, of course, has then an impact on the quality of life. You know, people have less activity. A good example, and I hear it very often, People don't want to go to the beach with friends or the children because they just don't want to be out there. And uh, I don't want to go to the gym doing some exercises because they're just not confident enough to do this. But of course, it's very sad. Yeah. And often the people, they move in a kind of a shell as well and they feel stigmatized because they haven't achieved things they would like to achieve, especially with the weight. And it's unfortunately very obvious to see if people gain weight. And I, I find it often also challenging you know people who would like to lose more than 10 15 kilograms on the row this is a super challenge hardly anyone is able to do this and sustain it so you meet one or the other person who have lost 20 kilograms and they are able to sustain it but this is just very very rare most of us would not be able to do it there's so many other factors playing a role and so people to consider bariatric surgery one is, of course, there are some personal reasons to take into account, which I just mentioned, but there's also the guidelines. But probably part of the personal reasons would be if you have their health issues, there could be, uh, you know, diabetes, blood pressure and so forth, uh, but also fertility can be is an important topic if you talk about weight loss surgery. Now, back to these guidelines. So the guidelines, we all know they are almost as old as my surgical training from 1991. And the reason why the guidelines have never been changed is because they have never been reassessed. So the old guidelines, we said, okay, people with a body mass index of more than 35 and have another health condition in the way of, you know, diabetes, hypertension, severe sleep, or any other problems should be considered for weight loss surgery or people with a BMI of 40 or without any other problems or excess weight of more than 45 kilograms. So these are actually people who have already a lot of weight to lose. And we all have seen in the last decades that people, when you operate on them before they have a lot of excess weight, they do actually much better. Mm. And so I had the opportunity more than a year ago to talk to one of the presidents, the IFSO president, and we had a long discussion about the these guidelines, and he was, of course, very well aware they are too old. And the reason why no one wanted to change it was because of the concerns of how safe is this operation. And the IFSA has taken ASMBS as well, so these are the international boards, guideline mm. organizations, did a long review of big studies, and it has shown actually weight loss surgery has become much safer. And I can tell this 
from my own experience as well in my training in the 90s. So the likelihood of complications and have severe issues in the recovery process was actually high, regardless where the operation was done and who did it. And these days, it has so much improved. You can compare the risk factors um, for all comers, I would say, similar to a Goldman operation, which is yeah. very, very safe. So, of course, you have to assess people for the fitness and so forth, but this is just basic things. And anyway, so the new guidelines are people with a BMI in between 30 and 34.9 do not have any other health problems, should be considered to for, for bariatric surgery, especially if their weight has not much improved with any other methods. So I think this is something which is a very important message. So Harold, patients who've been turned away before, once they've explored bariatric surgery and maybe didn't meet the previous guidelines, now that they've been reviewed by IFSO and the ASMBS, they may well fall within that new bracket for surgery. How would someone in this situation be best to revisit the possibility of qualifying for bariatric surgery now? So check out the new guidelines, which just got released this year, recommend surgery for people with a BMI more than 35 without any comorbidities, so without having diabetes, hypertension, or any other associated problems, or people who have a comorbidity but a BMI 30 to 34.9. So this is a weight bracket. The BMI brackets have substantially reduced. So mm. if people fall in this area, I think, they should just make contact with their GP and ask for a referral, talk to their doctor and see if they would meet these new guidelines. However, as you know, Australia is usually a little bit slower. I think they have not been fully implemented in all uh, areas in Australia. But of course, the people who work in this environment are very excited because we know if we help early, we help probably better in the long term. Yeah, and I was going to say that the research indicates also that people who are struggling with weight, they've tried everything, they're yo-yo dieting, they're doing their shakes and they're not having that success. The research is showing that patients are really only reaching out for help with their weight about eight years after they start to struggle. And it's based around stigma, their own internal stigma. I'm failing and my body's not responding to the things I'm doing. And really, if I'm exercising and I'm watching my calories, I should be losing weight, which we know is not the case. It's not always a case of calories in, calories out when there's a metabolic picture involved. I just think that that speaks for itself. If we can offer this life-saving and health-changing surgery earlier before all of these long-term comorbidities have been sitting around and percolating for eight years, what a game changer it would be for people's health in the long term. Yeah, look, there's so many benefits actually which are not really discussed, openly discussed in the non-surgical community or in the community of health professionals where bariatric surgery doesn't play a big role. So I would think it's important to take into account patients usually say have a new lease in life. Suddenly, you know, they feel so much better about themselves. They have much more active. All their many health implications have so improved. It's the back is less sore. The hips work much better and now the hip replacement is not necessary and maybe in 10, 15 years now, but it, it works all right and people up and about and do their things. And also very important, and I think this is a topic which is often forgotten, is fertility. 
fertility mm. really improves for females and males after bariatric surgery. This is also why, of course, after the operation, uh, when weight loss starts, we usually tell the patients, please, no pregnancy for 18 months at least mm. afterwards. But this is probably a different discussion, um, yeah. fertility and weight loss surgery. And that is an interesting one. We have had a few patients contact us with a bit of a surprise story. So it's, I think it's something to really remind people that these metabolic changes are very fast. I mean, some surgeons I've been speaking to will say that, you know, they take a patient in for a bypass and put them on the table. And by the time they've done the surgery, their diabetes is actually reversed. It's game changing for that, I guess, aspect of it, the metabolic side of things where I think that's underplayed is that kind of quiet background healing that takes place in the body. I always remind patients of that directly after surgery, they're in their recovery stage and they're complaining they're very tired and they're excited about this new lease on life and this one more opportunity, I suppose, to really make inroads on their weight and their health. And so they're quite excited to start exercising and get moving, but they're exhausted. And I need to often remind them that not only there's five little incisions on the outside of the body that they can see, but never underestimate what's going on as far as your digestive system is working out a whole new way of behaving, but your endocrine system is being overhauled as well. It's a pretty quick response, in my opinion. Would you say the same thing? Yeah, so for some operations, the response can be really remarkable. The hormonal response is unbelievable. In a few weeks, people can be off insulin sometimes. So it's really, really quickly and Part is the, of course, the whole process going through the dietitian workup, changing diets, and just making up their mind. And of course, it's a commitment, but the the changes are really quickly sometimes to see, and it's overwhelming. And it's interesting to see when I talk to other health professionals, they can't believe that that mm. how quickly things can respond. And then often, you know, especially for diabetes, surgery is seen as the last resource, which is actually wrong because we know that, for example, for diabetes, if people have the type 2 diabetes longer than five years, already in high amount of insulin, then it's less likely that surgery is going to be successful to achieve long-term remission. It will help, but probably less than it would have done some years earlier. So That's this really interesting. Into account, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't heard that before. If we go back to that eight years where people are leaving to their own devices out of a range of different reasons, you look at the way this weight affects, you've described it as pretty much every area of their lives, their self-confidence, their ability to exercise and do the things they enjoy with their families and that sort of thing. So there's a whole, I always say there's a hundred different things that lead you to bariatric surgery and the surgery is one, but it changes the game at the end of the day. I think you can't underplay just how life-changing it can be for those people who are at that crossroads of, I've tried everything. And when we speak to our community, we don't need to tell them about dieting and calories because they're expert. They've been counting calories and dieting for years. And like you say, to be successful at losing 20 kilograms and keeping it off, I think it's about 0.7% of people will lose that weight and maintain it. Because the body's set point is always working against us once we've carried that weight for a period of time. How does bariatric surgery then affect the set point? I guess to explain set point, it's like your internal driver 
of your ideal weight. And once weight goes up, the body registers that almost and stores it, I suppose. So we might lose weight, but there's internal drivers from a metabolic perspective and also behavioral that will drive us back to that top end weight. How does bariatric surgery intervene in the set point? Look, I think with the set point, it helps with early satiety. I think Mm. this is one of the important factors that people just feel full and it gives satisfaction to have a very small portion. It is the other positive benefits, of course, you know, the mobility and suddenly you can enjoy things more that you want to enjoy. You feel better about yourself and that is a very positive event. In the long term, of course, then this set point of weight may come back at some stage. And I think especially in the long term after bariatric surgery, people need to be aware that it's, it's ongoing work involved. Yes. So, you know, you have this 18, 24 months of a very, we call it the honeymoon period. Yeah. Things just happen on its own and it's absolutely fantastic. But after that, it needs some mindfulness and being open and be aware of old habits to counteract the body's push back towards this whole set point. But there is a lot of research is not finalized about this set point. And I think in the next couple of years, we're going to find much more out about it and how real it really is. Or as you also implied before, there might be other factors playing a role as well. Yeah, we're complex little machines. I think quite hard to put a bit of a pinpoint on what's going on sometimes. And that obviously takes time to show up in the research before we implement anything as well. So we're talking bariatric surgery, and that covers anything from lap bound, which is not as commonly performed anymore, but more now looking at gastric sleeve and the different forms of bypass. How in your practice would you say you help a patient to understand the types of procedures and which one might work for them? People often come in and have a very focused idea on a very specific procedure. And I appreciate that, that people did their research and looked through and want to get more information because they have met even more people who went on this transformation and are inspired by this positive experience of this person. And from my point of view, to explain the different operations, I ask a lot of questions. So the consultation takes a long time and then even my staff said, Harold, you talk too much. But I think asking questions is so important to determine the goal what people have, what actually they would like to really achieve with this operation. And this is a topic within its own. It can be not only the best possible weight loss, it's just lighter and travel a lot or just get rid of some of the medications or get rid of heartburn. Falling pregnant, there's so many factors can play a role in what type of operation needs to be discussed. And one other factor is, of course, how high the BMI is. We mentioned earlier that if you intervene early, you help better. So higher BMI needs probably a little bit of a more long-term powerful operation. And also, I think it's important, what is the patient's weight loss history as well? Mm-hmm. Are people able to lose weight on restriction and how much is this? So this is a couple of very interesting studies have been done and I find this extremely helpful. Other, of course, are food choices. People who love soft drinks and sweets need an operation which helps them to look for something else because they may not like it anymore just to give them better options than 
some problems with the intestines needs to be taken into account as well. But also the, the profession, what people have, the job that people have needs to be taken into account. I think it's extremely important. Good example is a chef, for example, needs to know that the gastric bypass can change taste. So which yeah. means if you cook and this is what you do for a living, it's important you probably, if you're very successful, continue the way you have done it before, even after you've had this operation. So just this, there needs to be an awareness about this or people who need to travel a lot or wants to travel a lot, work really, this is important. All also take into account that they have previous surgeries, previous bariatric surgery or bowel surgery or a big cut on the tummy. This all needs to be taken into account to suggest the best possible operation. For me, one of the important things is what is the person's goal? This is how it's usually the first question in the whole consultation. It is interesting, I think, with everything we've got access to now as far as the internet goes and there's a lot of bariatric forums on Facebook that people will join if they're considering the surgery. And I think they draw their own information from there. And you're right, it's a lot of the time it's, I saw this particular procedure work for a friend of mine, so I want that. But what you've just explained is how individual it is and how it always comes back to the idea of the patient and what their goals are, but also looking at from a surgical perspective the longevity of the procedure so there's no down the track there's less need for revision or less different I guess problems that arise from lifestyle like you say if they travel a lot or they've got limited access to the different foods they need that sort of thing I think it's much more of a bigger picture when we consult with the professionals and actually take on I guess the reasons why they're indicating one procedure over another The reason I'm highlighting this is that I've seen on those same forums that I turned up to my doctor and I asked for this and they said, no, you're having this. And they're really upset about that. And I just wonder, how do you manage that when someone has got their mind set on something when they walk into practice and you can see that there's likely other implications for choosing another type of procedure? How does that often pan out when we're looking at it's a big decision, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. And they, they've obviously well thought it out from a layperson's perspective. They come to see you and they get a, no, I think it would be better if you did it this way. Is there coaching that goes on? And how do you find that's taken on in general? So, Jackie, I think you said something very important that people do their own research. They have an opinion and working with this is important and it is a big step to have an operation for weight loss surgery and it shouldn't make very easy and not, no one makes it easily. And so this is why it should be a right decision, but I find it's a decision I don't make on behalf of the patient. I mm. make this with the patient. And so I explain a lot of different operations, the classic pros and cons of this operation, but then also take into account what the, just the patient told me before, like lifestyle, medications they need to take or something else. It could be pain relief. It could be antidepressants. Mm. So you have to take this into account how they're going to work after the operation if they still need it. And uh, so this can have an influence on what I may suggest. I would not force anyone for an operation if they feel super confident to have one the other operation. Only if I have strong concerns that this could be harmful, then I will not do this operation. I will just, of course, try to explain why? And I can tell you, all patients I have seen 
have very good insight in this topic as long as you take the time and explain it to them. Mm. Uh, yeah, think, that's the key, isn't it? Education. I think that's the key factor. Don't just rush through because it is something which is not reversible. It's a long-term commitment mm. and it needs time to explain actually what is taken into account. And as long as the patient and probably also myself are comfortable with the decision, then I think it's going to be the right and the good decision and they're going to have a good outcome because they are just well prepared. Absolutely. It's interesting. We see a lot of patients who are looking at using health insurance for their procedures, which often leaves them with a year-long waiting qualification process with their insurer. And I liken that to a, a bit of a comparison to falling pregnant is like, It happens, it's a big deal, but you get nine months to work through and become expert in what you think might happen after you have a baby. And I liken it to that of bariatric surgery. I think sometimes that waiting period of, I want to do this, I'm committing to my health fund provider, I've got a waiting period. And a lot of them are like, I just can't get the surgery to come soon enough. I think it's a really key time to percolate those ideas and the responsibilities that come alongside having the surgery, educate yourself, learn about the nutritional implications and perhaps use it as a time to start living that kind of healthier lifestyle even prior to surgery. I think that gives a lot of time to set new habits and really embrace what's about to happen rather than I want to have the surgery, I'm going to jet over to Thailand and have it immediately and pop back with no support. It becomes more about the surgical process being that kind of sole helper rather than the lifestyle and the considerations from a nutritional perspective that need to go alongside the surgery as well. So sometimes a wait is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a time to really have a look at new habits and that sort of thing. And that also comes in the first year, I would say. We encourage a lot of practicing and portion controlling and using portion plates and bowls. And I think a lot of people are like, well, I'm not really hungry. I'm still experimenting with a range of foods and making sure sort of finding the things that sit well for me. But I feel that's the time when these habits and these new awarenesses and mindfulness really need to be cemented because hunger is not driving a lot of the decisions at that point. And like you say, 18 to 24 months later, it starts to come back. If those habits are not pinned in that honeymoon period, that's when things can go a little bit pear-shaped. Would you agree? Yes, look, I I think so too. It's just habits, I think, is one of the, the main factors which can play a role because the environment of a person will not change afterwards. They still will hopefully have the same good friends, the same lovely family, the same great job they like to do. And it's just the the way they have done jobs or the way they interact with family just slightly needs to change or mm. the way they go shopping. And I've often seen, for example, that the way a whole family goes shopping, grocery shopping, of course, will change because one had weight loss surgery. Yeah. You can't have this or that. And it just, and everyone says, well, it's actually great. And it's a very beneficial effect to the whole family. So yeah. I think it's something which needs to be taken into account and uh, important is the input uh, going back to the dietitian even if i often hear oh come on i know exactly what they're going to say but it's like like yeah confession you know what i mean (laughs) talking about it uh, just talk about it and listen to it again it can be helpful and to achieve what actually this person wants to achieve and especially 
if habits are a problem, then a psychologist can be very helpful. Psychologists yeah. can be stigmatized. I've heard this a lot. Then we also have a coach, for example, which has a different approach, but can help in a kind of a similar way, but also a little bit different. So it is whatever works, we will try to help to, to get good long-term outcome. I think it's important that people have long-term follow-up with their surgeon or at least the team where they had the operation for several years. I think it's really important to know what is going on, what is happening, how is life going. They always can fall back to this team if there are any questions, even if I have patients that move to Canada, for example, and I'm still in contact with them. So I think this is quite important to be available. But of course, this is just guidance and helpful. Uh, Things are different, of course, in different places and availability of multivitamins or where do you get your blood tests done? This is different, but then it's often good also to help if there is a move much further away to get connected somewhere else, but I'm still available and try to help if possible. Yeah, I think that's the key is just reaching, I guess, keeping in contact with any part of the team will then, if there's, a, like you're saying, they pop in and see the surgeon again who picks up something that's going on that might be the job for a psychologist or a dietitian. they're getting that intervention that early enough that we can catch it and redirect. And it's not an overnight. I mean, I think a lot of our eating habits are established 30 or 40 years before the surgery is performed. So there's a lot to undo. And I don't think it's a wise thing to do it without support in any form. We always encourage a long relationship with the bariatric team. And we see even the research shows that that's where the benefit is and the long-term success of the patient is, did you turn up for your appointments? Have you had your bloods checked recently? Are you taking your bariatric multi-daily and are you checking back in with your team? And sometimes you feel like there's nothing to talk about. And then I used to do it in therapy or in any kind of realm. You walk in and think, oh, I've got not really much to report. And sometimes there are the sessions where some really pertinent things and really helpful, I guess, solutions come up is when you're not preempting, oh, I know what they're going to say and, oh, my God, this is happening. But we always encourage that, like if there is weight regain, to catch it early and reach out to the team and say, hey, something's going on. Is it my habits that have changed? Is there something else that I need to deal with? And acknowledging that obesity is a chronic disease is something that I think is helping in a lot of ways because we acknowledge that after surgery, two years down the track, when things do start to change, there may be more that can be done from a medical perspective that will still kind of elicit that success for the patient long-term. And obesity is either in remission or it's alive and well, I think. And I think it's the reason that we need to keep checking in is that things do change and being metabolic, things really can change quite kind of in the background that we we tend to just necessarily think that it's a medical or a body-related issue, but things are changing with our weight or our mood or our energy levels and that sort of thing. And there's always something that can be done. Talking about procedures, tell me a little bit about the different procedures that are carried out in your clinic, Harry. In my practice, I do a lot of different procedures. So one of the common procedures is, of course, the gastric sleeve. It's a well-established operation, has shown good success where the stomach is made much smaller, where you take roughly 80% of the stomach out. And then the smaller stomach gives good restriction and uh, also the, the part of the stomach which has been removed is the major production side of the hunger hormone drilling. 
And mm. by removing this, so people feel less hungry and they, the portion sizes are much smaller than before. So this is how the sleeve works. I think it's a very good operation for the right person. That's very important. And every operation is pros and cons, so has the gastric sleeve. The gastric sleeve can cause reflux, which can be controlled with tablets, but sometimes it can't and then it needs some other interventions to help this person. And that the stomach is also the person's best friend. So even the sleeve can stretch. And then the portion sizes increase and things get a little bit harder to maintain weight. But after five to 10 years, there can still be a very good outcome with the sleeve gastrectomy, especially if you intervene early with, a, with not to BMI not be too high. And this can be very helpful. With the gastric sleeve, I sometimes suggest a fixed ring system called the minimizer ring. I think this is something which I find interesting and there is more and more research uh, coming out that it's not an adjustable gastric band which gets put in there at the time of surgery and it seems that there's less stretching afterwards and the long-term weight loss seems to be better. However, there's always a catch. So <laughs> this needs to be taken into account and I always explain this to my patients. There's always a catch. So the ring is like a cable tire which is much floppier and soft silicon and so forth, but it's certain diameter, only small amount of food can go through. So it, food can get stuck there when it can't pass through. This ring is placed on the upper part of the sleeve. And so if food gets stuck there, this is painful and food comes back. And it needs a good discussion if people want this or are concerned with it because this is going to happen and it's not uncommon. I usually call patients, probably every fortnight, they can expect this to happen, especially they forget within a year or 18 months that the ring is in there. And then probably the old habits come back and the food gets just chewed very quickly and swallowed. This is going to get stuck and it's going to be unpleasant. So this is the gastric sleeve. I think overall this is good. There's an option of a minimizer ring there for some people if wanted, but it needs to be discussed. Is this something what they want? Then the other option is always a gastric bypass. The gastric bypass is the oldest weight loss operation we still do these days. There are two types. One is a single anastomosis gastric bypass, and the other one is a very old-school Rouen-Y gastric bypass. They work just very slightly differently and can be applied for different purposes. And the Rouen-Y is certainly a complex operation because it needs two joints, which can increase risks slightly for the operation. But the root wise is a very good anti-reflux operation. So if someone mm-hmm. who is a big person and has reflux, the root wise is something what they probably should consider. But of course, for a bypass operation, you take into account dumping often gets mentioned or absorption from fat is reduced. So this all needs to be discussed in details, but also they have a risk of ulcers. So if someone has a, ch- a chance that they smoke or vape, then a bypass should not happen. They get an ulcer. This is painful, unpleasant. It's just, no, this is, needs to be taken into. Another operation, which I also do, is called a um, loop duodenal switch operation, which is a very powerful weight loss operation, more powerful than a bypass. It is done since about 2007 and has uh, shown to be very beneficial for people with high BMI or people who need a revisional bariatric operation. The first operation was not that successful. Then this is something which can be done. Again, absorption is reduced and a good follow-up and 
a lot of things need to be taken into account here as well. But this is something which is also for a, a group of people can be quite interesting. And I'll, I'll take my patients through all of this. Then I also have uh, patients who want something reversible. And then this would be an intergastric balloon, which I place endoscopically, stays for six months there and gives the weight loss 10, 15 kilograms, which is for some people enough. This is uh, on a very individual base. Yeah, of course. And the behavioral change, I guess, that would need to take place in that time frame for that weight loss to be something that's maintained would be something else alongside. Is that right? Yes, correct. So usually they lose the weight in the first, let's say, three months. Mm-hmm. And then that's the only way worked for, you know, portion sizes, control, habits. And so it's something which can be helpful, especially with low BMIs. Again, we come back to one of the initial topics we spoke about goals. What are the goals? What want people to achieve and what they would like to do? And it's all about an agreement in between the patient and, for example, myself, what we agree on, what we would like to do. Of course. And you touched on revision. I think I see a lot in our communities of I've had my gastric sleeve and I've started to regain weight, which I'll just caveat with saying it is expected that there'll be some regain. It just depends on how much and whether it's most of your weight regained. Of course, that's time to have a look at it. A lot are throwing their hands up in the air and saying my gastric sleeve has failed me and now I need more surgery. How do you address that kind of thinking and at what stage do you when would you recommend a revision to a different form of surgery gastric sleeve is normally revised to a bypass in those situations but is it the first thing that you would intervene with is another surgery what do you look at in those situations when there's a regain and a feeling of this surgery has failed what's the first step for a patient in that sort of situation it's a very important question and Two different approaches. One approach is if, for example, a sleeve has failed, how long after the operation are we talking? Has the person ever lost significant amount of weight? I talked about an excess weight loss, let's say 70 or 80%, or has the person never lost more than 50% of the excess weight? So this is a different approach. So someone who never lost a substantial amount of weight despite, you know, sticking to diets, exercising and following the instructions very carefully, then a revision operation can be the way to go. And there's data showing that this can really help to lose more amount of weight. Now, people who had this leave since several years and unfortunately, after some substantial weight lost, gained, very bit of weight for whatever reasons, then it's usually old habits came back. And one approach is always talking again to a dietitian. Now, one approach is not rushing into an operation and using, if available, medications. I think this needs to be mentioned as well, especially in this setting. There are good studies showing that people who regain too much weight years down the track after bariatric operation, let's say Saxenda or Ozempic, for example, this can be very beneficial and they can have good success and they may not need an operation. It just helps them, of course, with input of dietitian or the psychologist as well to go back on track and operation can be avoided. So I think this is usually the approach I would have in such a situation. It's a great point and it's one to bring up because I think, firstly, patients feel that they've failed and 
they don't want to turn up and say, I've failed, my habits have changed again, and I'm not eating my protein first. And that's kind of the first thing we see happens. And evidence shows it's about 12 months after surgery, that kind of bariatric guideline of eating with meals containing 50% protein and eating that first. That's when those sorts of things start to flip and the carbs can come back in, which will then spark off a whole cascade of more hunger, more cravings, that sort of thing. I guess what I was going to say was looking at these other options that you've just mentioned, different medications that are available and other interventions. This is, again, the key to coming back to the team and saying, hey, I'm struggling again. It's either, uh, yes, I've changed my habits. Can you help me reassess that and reset those with maybe some psychology or maybe some dietitian intervention? But also these things that you've got up your sleeve that can help them with GLP-1 analogs now hopefully available. And like you say, Saxon, reiterating that obesity will rear its head at some point. A lot of it's genetic. A lot of it's environmental, a lot of it's behavioral, but looking at the fact that it's not always going to be asleep in your body. <laughs> so these other less invasive interventions are often a way to go and they'll just set you back on the track to where you needed to be and off you go again. But life is never linear. And I think a lot of patients expect after surgery that it'll just all be downhill with weight and then everything will be fine. And weight gain is never linear. So it's looking at how long did it take you to get to that situation where you needed surgical intervention for weight loss? And then what are your expectations of unwinding all those other factors of behavior and habit and I guess the reward system even that we set up with kids when they're children? I think we forget that a lot of our food habits are established very, very early in life. And they're ingrained because we just keep practicing them year after year. So when we want to change them, we expect to be able to turn it all on its head and it'll all be fine. Having hunger out of the way is a big help, but I think it's always key to remember that life isn't linear. I think we all go through different stages of being amazing at looking after our health and then sometimes we're not so good, but also realizing that we're not necessarily equipped to do that on our own. And reaching out to professionals who've spent all those years learning about that to implement that information and reach out and get a quick fix rather than a guess. I think that's a key is um, keeping that kind of the, the communication lines open is a really big thing for life after surgery, not just for the first couple of years. I think one of the important things you mentioned is people feel they have failed. It's not the case. As you mentioned earlier, it's a chronic disease and people feel guilty if they have not achieved what some other people have achieved with a procedure and operation or have achieved goals. And as you said, life is not linear at all. And there's so many variations in between people, how they live life and what they would like to do. I think all this needs to be taken into account. And once this is done, keep your contacts with your team and support structures. And I think this is going to be helpful. As you said, it's a chronic problem, which can be really minor if attention is paid very early. Yeah, and I think it's the same if you're genetically predisposed to high blood pressure. You go to the doctor, you get your blood pressure treated. They give you medication that helps with your blood pressure. They offer lifestyle interventions that you hopefully take on. But you don't stop taking your medication just because 
time went on, it's something that needs to be revisited and reassessed at regular intervals. And I think that's kind of the key in this new revision of the weight loss surgery guidelines and the understanding that this chronic condition that is obesity is understanding that it should be treated in the way that cancer is treated or heart disease and that sort of thing, because it's not something that we just switch off with surgery and off you go and don't stop taking your supplements and don't stop taking the things that keep you healthy. And I think it's a way of bringing it into a parallel with other conditions that are less stigmatized. Would you be ashamed of turning up to your doctor because you have genetically high blood pressure? It's not something to be ashamed of. Whereas the way that we've pictured obesity in society is that, look what you did to yourself. But it's not even that, is it? No, I don't think so. It is There are too many factors playing a role. It's a holistic problem, I would call it. It's a very Mm -hmm. holistic problem and this needs to be taken into account and there is no guilt, as I said before, look what you have done to yourself. It has nothing to do with this. No. But the problem is there's still out there to see bariatric or weight loss surgery as a cosmetic or plastic operation. Just It's all about the looks. It's not all. It's about much more feeling better about yourself and being healthier but this is there's still a lot of work needs to be done um, Mm. especially in Australia I feel. Yeah with the whole idea but I mean I was going to touch on that with you is the more we're seeing weight loss surgery patients and the more which is a good thing in a way because we've helped so many people to turn their lives around with this life-changing surgery is to qualify that it's not handed out freely firstly and it's also not an easy option. So I think a lot of the lay person's understanding of weight loss surgery is, oh, well, you just gave up, you went and had bariatric surgery, and now you've taken the easy way out. I would say it's anything but that. Yeah, I agree. It's, I think it's not the easy way out. It's probably the only way out for most people. Mm-hmm. Coming back to the initial topics we had, 10, 15 kilograms, yes, you might be able to sustain this, but everything more than that, less than 1% are able to sustain. So I think it is a very important topic, especially in Australia. There are so many people who unfortunately are overweight or obese and and have health problems with it. And yet it needs to be discussed and mentioned. Yeah, I think it's great where we are recognising that and offering it at an early stage. There's a lot more GPs who are getting on board with medical weight loss and then, you know, what it takes to help patients with their weight I'm not sure it was the the first port of call for patients who were struggling with weight loss and regain. They would tend to look for an online diet or the quick fix kind of meal replacement shapes and then see how that went and then diet and exercise. I think we've also sent the message time and time again that you should just be able to diet and exercise and everything would sort itself out as far as your weight goes. And now we've got evidence to show that actual bouts of exercise are not really where weight loss is at. It's more incidental exercise, a busier lifestyle or a more active lifestyle that is the key. It's not necessarily exercise movement we're looking for. It's just movement. And when you look at all the technology and all the different things that are presenting themselves to us, we're doing nothing but slow down our incidental movement. I know I walked past the soccer field the other day where there was a group of little primary school kids all doing their soccer training 
and the parents were waiting on the sideline with their younger children who were obviously waiting for the siblings to finish their training session. And it occurred to me that in my day, which wasn't that long ago, if I was waiting for my siblings, I was hanging from a tree or I was running around or I had other kids to play with and there was so much movement in that waiting time. And these kids were sat on a blanket with their screens in front of them. And I'm not saying that those children were always in that situation. It may be that they were unwell that day and that was just helping them to relax or sit them still for some children. But what I'm seeing is this obesogenic environment we're living in and how easy it is to minimize movement on a day-to-day basis. And then we drive to the gym and do a 30-minute workout and think that's the key to weight loss. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's where you touched here a couple of very interesting topics. So one is, of course, current society. We all have computers and smart devices, phones, tablets, you name it, with us. And they do so many fantastic things and they do exactly what we like. So it's highly attractive and it has an addictive potential. This has mm. been as well known because it's so overwhelming with information. We, it's really enjoyable and interesting. But of course, the downside is that it's very hard to move when looking on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, has some risk factors involved. And this is a problem. And even if parents try to take this screen off their child, there's going to be screaming and yelling, and it's going to be almost a fight to get this young one off this screen because it's hard to explain and it's so difficult to understand, especially when you're very young. Um, yeah, and even as adults, maybe we're so exposed to this. And of course, then movement is less. However, old people screens have been shown to help to maintain the cognitive functions and thinking and so forth. But this is probably less the population who would are concerned about the weight because they're probably towards the end of the month. Yeah. Um, the genetic factors are very, very interesting because some factors are not uh, true genetic factors. They are more epigenetics, we call this. These are yeah. factors where environmental factors influence that people should become big when adults like children from an obese mom are more likely to become obese mm-hmm. it's good studies from north america and interesting if they the mom had weight loss surgery and has, there's the, still the same dad and they have another child this seems that in the second baby now has less chance of being obese than as adult and this is called epigenetics because the information can slightly change is caused by environment or nutrition and so forth. And this is really interesting. And it looks like that parents have been big for, for a couple of generations, then it's even harder to reverse it afterwards. Even if one person says, look, I need to lose weight and before I start a family, then it seems to be harder. But there's still, this is new research, but mm. it's, it's very interesting, this epigenetics. Absolutely. They say that the genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. So you may have the genetic predisposition to certain conditions. So I could look back in my family and say, well, there's heart disease on my mother's side and there's cancer on my father's side. However, and that may have been a genetic predisposition for both of those, but I look at their lifestyle and I'm like, the lifestyle pulled the trigger and that's perhaps why they went that way. So looking at ways we can live with that knowledge of what our family history holds in our genes and look at ways we can 
live our lives so that we don't let our environment and our behaviours and habits actually activate those genes so they become part of our health picture. Yeah, I think it's important to take these factors into account. Like genes are important, but mm. it depends what, what people do with it. So I, think I completely agree. And I think that's the best thing about technology is we're finding all of this out now and there's ways to hack that system in a lot of ways. We look at different genetic polymorphisms or same thing like a predisposition or a genetic trait and we look at nutrigenomics, which is a way of giving the body the certain nutrients that are needed to actually help those genes to be less detrimental to health. You know, this knowledge now that we can gain through different testing and investigation just from more of a preventative health perspective gives us that understanding that from much younger age, we could be putting in more folate or more B12 if we have particular methylation genetic SNPs and treating those in a long-term, more preventative way so that we do have better health in the longer term as well. I think there's so much evidence and so much research going on in all of that um, at the moment. It's a pretty exciting time to be alive. And I think my last question for you, Dr. Harold, is what are your tips for success overall from long-term bariatric patients? Well, the first question is, of course, how do you measure success? Yes. Uh, is success, is it the scale? Does it show how much weight you have lost and you were able to maintain? Or are we talking about the goals you were able to achieve? Like coming off one or the other medication, falling pregnant, going on all the theme park rides you wanted to go. I think this is more where I see the success. However, the long-term success of an operation is important in the way of being mindfulness. And it's seeing if things are changing and old habits come back. Oh, we get this lolly bag now, or this chocolate in between is really helpful. There's so much stress. Then I think re-engage in between your normal follow-up appointments with the dietitian or with the surgical team. You have seen a psychologist and help you to achieve what you would like to achieve for yourself in the long term. So follow-up and staying in contact is really important. Also, the other success is to stay healthy as well. So being aware, okay, there will be some weight gain, which is going to be normal because once you have lost weight, your body burns less energy. So eating less helps to lose weight, but at some stage you burn also less energy. So even eating slightly more can lead to a little bit of weight gain. And this is all within a normal area what the human body wants to do to compensate after such an operation. And this is all normal and needs to be accepted, but it becomes more than reconnecting with dietitian, the surgical team, more than psychologist is very important. Another thing which I think is needs to be mentioned is stay on the multivitamins. We have seen very concerning deficiencies for patients who thought, well, I don't need that, I feel fine. But often once you have developed deficiencies from vitamins and micronutrients, some of them are unfortunately not reversible. Mm-hmm. And then it can be very hard and difficult to change things and can be disappointing because people may have excellent success, but because of not taking into account nutritional advice or input, they have significant disadvantages. So I think this is the couple of things I would believe is part of the success. Being mindful, be aware of your goals, what you would like to do, believe in yourself. 
that's important. Have a good team. Make sure you choose the right team as well, where you are able to have contacts down the line, follow-up, some blood tests done. Follow-ups can be done even easily over the phone if you're a very busy person or if it's further away. Also, there's so many options these days to stay in contact and, and just make sure that accountability is also part of this mindfulness, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I think I did a podcast with Sebastian Terry a while back and he was saying that accountability will increase your results by about 85%. So just that checking in and knowing that you've got these other places to land when you need support, but also that you've got that accountability to others, it certainly does help in a huge way and we always encourage that. And thank you for touching on the fact that the multivitamins are part of every day after surgery and the weight loss surgery guidelines for surgery have been reviewed and are implemented by the ASMBS in America and they also have the nutritional guidelines for weight loss surgery as well that they've developed based on research on about 100,000 patients I think and their deficiencies after weight loss surgery. So It is a real thing and I think a lot of the time patients sign up for bariatric surgery for a new lease on life and I think nutritionally down the track without the right supplementation, there's a real chance that those goals are not realised because they just don't feel well and their nutritional sufficiency of the diet and the malabsorption that's left behind by the surgery, they just start to feel kind of a bit washed out and grey and tired. But like you say, there's other repercussions such as nervous system impacts and that sort of thing if things are left for a long period of time. And yeah, the risks are quite real, I think, which is a nice thing to touch on to wrap up the podcast. So thank you. I really think we've explored bariatric surgery with someone who's pretty much top of the game and has been involved for some 30 years. So it's information we can certainly trust and rely on. Now, Dr. Puhala, where would we find you if we wanted to reach out and um, explore this new way of life for some people who've reached that time? Look, one option is just to look up weightlossoperation.com.au. So this is where people find all their details about myself and the, the small team which is helping me. But everyone in this team is very motivated and keen and experienced. I'm in Southport in Queensland in the Pacific private building and I operate in the local private hospitals to provide what uh, I think is good for my patients. Yeah, thank you very much for having me today. I really enjoyed this chat we had and thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Your time is very valuable, so I appreciate you giving it up to um, help with our efforts to educate and support patients either looking at embarking on the bariatric journey or kind of different crossroads that we come up against throughout the post-surgical journey as well. Dr. Puhala, it's been a pleasure. I'm so grateful for your time and I'm sure we'll cross your path in the near future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jake. Have a good day. Thanks for listening. And just before you go, we would love to hear your feedback. So please give us a rating and review. For other interesting topics of conversation and inspiration, come and drop into our Facebook community at BN Bariatric. If you've enjoyed our podcast, we hope you will share on your Facebook or Instagram and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.